Hi, this is Anishka Fernandopoli. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button under my picture on dharmaseed.org or go to my website, anushkaf.org, A-N-U-S-H-K-A-F.org, and click on donate. Thanks. I appreciate your support. So many things in life and in nature are circles. And tonight we want to uh, talk about a topic that will bring us full circle to something we talked about in the very beginning of the retreat, which is around the training precepts, uh, guidelines uh, for action suggested by the Buddha uh, for a training of our heart and mind. And we thought that uh, each of us would share something about what our experience has been in using these in our daily life as practice since you'll soon be leaving the retreat space tomorrow and returning to your uh, non-retreat existence. So each of us will um, have some reflections for this. And first, to introduce uh, Joanna to go. Thank you. One of the things I really appreciated about uh, retreat practice when I first started was actually the the aspect of renunciation that was asked for through the precepts. So there was the external renunciation of you know our cell phones and our electronics and our contact with our loved ones, with maybe our precious comfort foods and coffee shops and, you know, all the things that um, we do out in our life. Uh, So we shake off all these sort of external things to give us space to deeply reflect. But one of the things that I also noticed was all of the internal renunciation that was also happening that I was being asked to give up my habituation of mind that um, often lied to me, you know, or told me untruths. Um, I was asked to give up ways that my heart um, needed to be filled um, extemporaneously by outside sources. So the the renunciation was happening on all levels. Um, my judgment, my ju- very critical judgmental mind, I was trying to renounce um, my fears, you know, so much stuff. And I know that you guys are experiencing this. And I remember leaving, as you know, some of you might be feeling right now, it's like, well, you know, I feel really kind of good maybe right now. And what's it going to be like when I get back out there? And for me, um, I mentioned earlier, I'm I'm a mom, and I've been a single mom for almost 19 years. Um, I didn't have the opportunity like a lot of people did and do to go on long retreat. You know, for me, I I would get a week here and 10 days there and weekends here and day-longs there, and I did as many of them as I could during the year, but I didn't do the monastery, and I didn't do um, the three months or the month longs. I was devoted and serious about my practice, but what I found was the place I could be the most true to my practice was through my 
ethical conduct was through how I behaved out in the world. And the Eightfold Path does have these three main baskets, as they call them, which is sila, samadhi, and panya. And sila, sila being our ethical practice, wise speech, wise livelihood, wise actions. And within that falls these five precepts. And so I, I took those very, very seriously. And I took them every single morning, and I think I brought that up. Um, so I have my sheet, in, in, which is in the Pali translation, and I learned part of taking them every day was learning how to chant them in Pali. And I sit on my cushion every morning still. And even if I don't do a sitting practice, I take my precepts. I take the refuges and the precepts. And they're my daily reminder. And what it has done, you know, like a stone, it has really polished um, edges in me that really needed some help. And I would say that um, wise speech is my biggest challenge. Has been for a very long time. I think I was born with a forked tongue And I actually had friends when I was in elementary school, I had my friends sort of hire me as the assassin who would take out any kid that thought they were tougher or was trying to harm somebody. And I would come and with my tongue, you know, chop them down. It was an awesome skill at at one point. But, you know, when you start um, growing up... (laughs) It became a habit. You know, I knew how to hurt somebody with my words. People I loved a lot, you know. Social injustice was my biggest one. If I felt that fever rising in my body with any social injustice, I was sort of like, I was the anti-bully. So I was actually the one who would defend the kid who needed help right and so that like I kind of have taken that with me and it's always been this sort of um I can even feel it rising in me now you know when I when I look at what happens in the world and just like wanting to scream and yell and tear people apart with my words and how um that is ineffective And I learned that in many hard ways. And this one precept around being wise and careful with our speech um, was really one that helped me and my mindfulness practice to over and over again watch the arising, watch the fever, watch the anger, watch the, the pain, and then learn over time how I could use my words much more skillfully and how my my words could actually create connection and unity and a movement versus division. And I love, I'm the guiding teacher at uh, my sangha, which is against the stream. And um, we're based in LA, but we also have a sangha in San Francisco. And I have a PLC ally group, which I love because it's an opportunity and a venue for people to make mistakes with their words, to learn from each other. We sit together and sort of, rumble through stuff but it's held in the safety of the container of wise speech and deep listening and it's really quite beautiful 
And so it doesn't mean that my desire to still, you know, be unwise with my speech is still there, but I don't act on it anymore. And so I hold this precept has meant a lot to me in that area. Another one I want to share, I, I think I was only supposed to have, this, this is big for me, so we were each going to take about 10 minutes, but I just want to also talk about one more thing. I also have to admit that I was, I was worried that I might have caused harm earlier when I was in here. Um, and I know some funny things came out of my mouth, but it was sort of like, I hope I didn't cause any harm. And there are times when uh, sitting up here, because people of color sitting up here is rare. And I still have that shameful, like, oh my God, the Dharma police is going to come and take me away. (laughs) You know, like I'm not supposed to be up here. And then when I say something, then it's, I prove it to myself, you know? So I, I'm, I look forward to when I can be confident enough in everything that I say that I won't cause harm. And that may or may not come for me. <laughs> um, but I, I, uh, I hold it in the highest intention. The other piece for me, and I'm just going to talk about the first precept. I already talked about my sexuality a bit and you know how I sort of dealt with that. So the first precept, which is not causing harm, how I've held, uh, hold that is I'm, I, you know, I am one of those people who escorts bugs out the door and, and does all of that sort of thing. Um, but when it really came to light for me was when I, I live in a big Spanish house that has tiled roofs and banana trees and all those things around it. And in Los Angeles, that's like sort of asking to have rodents. That's what you're asking for. So I had them, and they, they were the kind of rodents that just thought they could hang out in my kitchen. They were like, yeah, what are you making for dinner? You know, it was like sort of this. <laughs> I remember one time I had company over, and this, it, this rat like peed in my friend's shoe. And it was like, wow, <laughs> you know, bold. <laughs> so anyway, you know, obviously it got to the point where I'm not okay with this. Like, I'm paying rent for me and my kids and not you guys. <laughs> And, you know, then all my friends are like, rat poison, rat traps, da 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 And I was like, I'm a Buddhist. Like, I can't, I, I really couldn't do that. I just couldn't do it. And so I lived in New York City for a long time, and I had cats. And I remembered that, like, we would sort of pass the cats around from apartment to apartment. <laughs> and whoever had the cat, you knew that your apartment was rat-free. So I decided to hire the mercenaries and get the cats. <laughs> and um, I got two cats. And they were six weeks old, and literally the day I brought them in, like, the rats were gone. Like, they were gone. And it felt like this really nice way to honor the first precept, you know, to really just like, (laughs) wow, I figured this out, and I didn't have to kill a rat. So... I'm going to let my friend, <laughs> my friends, because <laughs> I have a lot of stories. Um, I'll let my friends <laughs> go. No, it's okay. I'll chime in if something comes to me. Yeah, we'll each share a little bit and then we can jump back in maybe. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> what <about> fun. <laughs> 
that I was thinking about, you know, the hard part of being a trainee is it feels like I just have one thing to say about each topic. You know, it's like the precepts, they're important. You know, <laughs> it's like, okay, all right, turn off the mic, you know, good. <laughs> but, but then Anushka will say, well, why are they important? And it's like, ah, now, now it gets a little more challenging, you know. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I was thinking about I was thinking about the you know the precepts in general, and my mind actually, when I was reflecting, went uh, to a time in my life you know before I had come into contact with the Dhamma actually, and what life was like without the precepts, um, because I think there's so much learning um, that actually comes when you know we actually find that maybe you know we've kind of erred outside of the safety net of these precepts and really seen you know, what happens, you know, in our relationships to the environment, to our own mind and heart, you know, when we err outside. And that's a learning, right? And that's going to happen. Um, but, you know, it made me think about a time, you know, I was about, about 15, and um, it was hard. You know, I was living in a predominantly a white community. There's maybe like 5% of the population was POC. And, you know, there's just a lot of shame and loneliness. And when I look back, I was probably depressed as well. Um, and I started acting out, you know, I started uh, kind of drinking and, you know, smoking weed, dabbling in hallucinogens, you know, and, and I started stealing, you know, I was, you know, taking stuff that wasn't mine and had, you know, run-ins with the police and all that, but um, it was hard, you know, I was in a really painful spot, um, but someone sort of recommended, someone I trust, hey, you know, maybe you know, try this two-day, two-day, uh, two-day retreat. And so I think there's enough wisdom there to know, like, this isn't sustainable. You know, where is this going? You know, I just felt like it was, um, it didn't have a good ending, you know, if I kept on that, that route. And so I went. And uh, it was interesting. I, I wasn't really familiar with the precepts at the time, um, but yet this teacher made it a point each morning and evening to kind of go over the precepts. And it, it became really apparent that, that, the, the precepts, the, the emanation or the result of everyone in community practicing the precepts, it just created an atmosphere of, of safety, you know, it created an atmosphere of ease. And, you know, I'd leave my door unlocked, which was kind of unfamiliar for me. Um, you know, I felt like I could be vulnerable and honest with my teachers and be really direct with, with my speech. And, you know, obviously I didn't, you know, sneak any, you know, substances in or anything, so I committed to the weekend of, you know, not doing any of that. And, uh, yeah, there were moments that, you know, where there was just a sense of well-being, and they were just moments, but it was enough to feel like I kind of escaped the fire, you know, just for a few moments. And, you know, that was enough to really realize, hey, you know, there's something here, there's something here. And these precepts seem to be sort of creating the container, you know, in which... Uh, in which sort of I can open and which understanding can actually happen and there's a certain harmony here. Um, and so then that began my exploration kind of of, of the precepts and I, I think over time it's become, it's become just more apparent how, uh, Yeah, I'm just thinking about how after the, that retreat, I realized I had a compass, you know. I went from being completely lost to, oh my gosh, you know, here's five things I can do 
that will at least keep me, keep me hemmed in from the worst of what's possible on the outside of that path of safety. And I, I took refuge in that. It's like, gosh, at least I have some, you know, some direction now. And I know that if I really am interested and invested in well-being, I'll start to make this a practice and a commitment, you know, day to day. Um, and so that's what I tried to do. And I'm still trying to do, I'm still trying to understand, you know, what the nuances of each precept and, and having forgiveness when I err outside and trying to learn what I can, you know, from when I do err outside um, of, you know, the, the safety of the precepts, you know, and, uh, and yeah, you know, and, you know, I just love that sequence because I found it to be so relevant uh, in my life and with the practice, you know, uh, the precepts, you know, when we're, I think when we're really applying them, we don't have much remorse, right? We don't have much regret around actions that, you know, that we didn't take, you know, things that we could have done, but we refrained and we reflect on those times or we reflect on, you know, when we, you know, practice, you know, the opposite of stealing, which is generosity. And, you know, those become imprints in the mind. And thinking back, you know, on some of these, uh, you know, the times where we really kind of embodied the precepts, I think it brings gladness to the mind. And, and when there's gladness, there's ease. Right? And when there's ease, I think there's a degree of concentration that's possible. And you know, when we have that concentration, then we can, we can kind of more clearly understand you know, what's here now and what, you know, what this is all about with clarity. You know, we can see that. And so it really is the foundation. And I think you know, it really leads up to you know, the culmination of this practice. Um, but without it, you know, without it, I mean, it's kind of like kind of a drift, right? <laughs> Um, but yeah, so that, that was my, my experience and the precepts are important. <laughs> I encourage you all to practice them, but yeah, and be gentle in doing that. So yeah, well, thanks. <laughs> So I told uh, Anushka in the teacher room, I got nothing. <laughs> nothing to say, but I actually thought of something to say. Um, I love the precepts. And um, it's said that, you know, in our uh, Theravada tradition, there's different levels of enlightenment that you get to. And it's said that with very little meditation practice, but with really excellent sila, that the first stage of enlightenment is really very accessible to you. I, think, I don't think that's a little thing. And I think that um, there is stories of um, people who have actually been able to attain you know, high levels of awakening and had a lot of bad karma, but Mogalana, that there is, you know, you can do that, but uh, even people who are fully enlightened and have uh, bad karma of bad sila, you know, you still have to pay for your sila. Oh, Angulimala, yeah, it was Angulimala. Do you guys know the story of Angulimala? Yeah, yeah, he had a. Uh, he had a um, necklace of, was it fingers? Fingers of the, of the people he had killed. But he actually became fully enlightened. 
But, you know, people, he would go to give Dharma talks or follow the Buddha around, and people would still throw stuff at him and say, there is Angulimala, let's go get him. And so he still actually had the karma of the things that he had done. So um, I really love Sila. I also, like Joanna, am working with right speech, you know, because, you know, people say that sometimes my dharma is kind of edgy, and I guess I don't. I just am trying to investigate that, provocative or edgy. I want to investigate that without, you know, stifling my true voice and my interpretation of it. I just want to make sure that I don't uh, trigger people on, you know, it's an issue between uh, intention and impact, right? So I'm just trying to figure out impact. And one way I think it's really excellent to use the uh, precepts is... Uh, I love the story of Ananda and the Buddha. When Ananda, you know, I guess they're sitting around with Sangha and Ananda turns to the Buddha and said, Buddha, uh, good company, holy company, it's half of the holy life. It's so wonderful, it's half of the holy life. And the Buddha said to Ananda, don't say that, Ananda, don't say that. Good company is the whole of the holy life. It's the whole of the holy life. And so for me, you know, Sangha is people who practice the precepts. And I know that it's people who are committed to that ethical conduct. And, you know, I don't like to use it as a checklist, but when you think about it, people who don't care about hurting other people people who lie without having it be an issue, people who take what's not given, people who are careless in their sexual behavior, people who, you know, use intoxicants and don't care the impact of that. It's, you know, it's questionable, really. And, you know, I still, in this mind-body complex have so much to continue to uproot and to cultivate but it makes a difference to me whether a person practices the precepts and actually you know I my fiance is a Japanese American guy who he's a member of the Buddhist Church of America and they don't really meditate and it was like wow wouldn't it be so cool if you meditated but But in most ways, he has really impeccable sila. <laughs> he does have impeccable sila. And it's so beautiful. It's really attractive. <laughs> Isn't it attractive? It's really, it's kind of sexy, really. <laughs> right? It can be. It's very cool. Sila. So anyway... Was that too edgy? <laughs> was that wrong speech? That was my truth. And I apologize if it triggered anyone. <laughs> because actually celibacy, brahmacharya, that can be really cool too. Yeah, it can be very positive. So, um, I guess that's all I had to say, that it's not only just about this mind-body process and... Um, 
Oh, one other thing is that it gets to a point, and many of you probably have felt this, that it becomes a force in your life. It's like you don't even have to think about it. It's like when you're breaking one of the precepts, this force arises, and it's almost like a barrier. Isn't it? It's like you know when you're just exaggerating a little bit too much where it's, you know, it's going into a lie. Or like last night I had a mosquito in my room and I have like a million mosquito bites, but I wasn't going to kill the mosquito. And I couldn't be bothered to just find him in the room at like one o'clock in the morning. But I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't kill him. And I think, you know, there, uh, the, it, it's not that you can't take care of yourself like that. The Tibetans have really beautiful rituals when they do insecticide stuff. So, you know, I'm not saying that you can't kill insects, but um, it, there, it just becomes a force and it, uh, it feels really wholesome. It actually feels, it's really pleasant Vedana. To, to live an ethical life is pretty pleasant, Vedana. And like Vance said, it really does provide a calm mind. And actually, it's a calm mind that when people do, uh, you know, microaggressions and macroaggressions and everything, it actually really provides an opportunity of not automatic reaction. I think it really provides some space for us to deal ethically. When you know that those ethics are so important, it provides space for us to really respond in a way in a way to all of these assaults, the dukkha of life that really matches our values. It matches, more deeply matches our deepest aspirations of how we want to be with our families, with our friends and the world. It can be very helpful and I love the precepts. That's what I have to say. And one of the um, phrases that's used to describe the uh, thing that several of us uh, were talking about is the bliss of blamelessness. And the bliss of blamelessness. So it means like there's actually a deep happiness from not having regret about things that you've done. You know, there's a peace of mind and there's a foundation of well-being that you can have from that. And I knew this to be true, but also uh, as I've been teaching uh, meditation retreats, and um, as you know, it's like an unusual thing. You're kind of going underwater for a little while. And many of the things that people report as bothering them the most from uh, sittings, like what comes up repeatedly, are um, basically times when someone else harmed them in some way, like breaking the precepts physically or verbally or sexually, um, harm that's done to us, or else, uh, in case this has come up for you also, times that we have harmed someone else. You know, things that we have done that we regret, like stuff we've said or things we did um, when we were, like, deluded or scared or times we physically harm people. And, and to me, this gives me kind of more faith in um, understanding of causality of the Dharma that uh, this whole path of training is about understanding sort of the nature of how things are, you know, the truth of how things are and the ways in which we're out of alignment with that causes friction, it causes stress. You know, it causes stress in our own mind and hearts and it causes suffering for others also. And one of the things about the precepts is also about that um, those who follow the precepts, we give 
uh, freedom from oppression to limitless beings. And giving freedom from oppression to limitless beings, we also give this freedom from oppression to ourselves. So that's very deep. You know, where, where is freedom from oppression? And it's like, oh, it's possible to uh, cultivate this. It's possible to find this through my own actions and actually through renunciation in this way. And when we reflect on the world for ourselves, uh, a lot of the harm that's done in the world, uh, if people were following the precepts, it would be a very different world. Right? I mean, particularly for us as people of color, right? The killing that's happened. Uh, the stealing of land of people that's happened, the sexual abuse that's happened, right? the wrong, abusive, harmful speech that's happened. Right? Like all of this has caused so much harm and so much trauma for us individually and uh, as communities. So in some ways, as we do the practice and we learn about this, there's a way in which... Um, we're learning to dismantle the systemic oppression in ourselves. And this also helps us to have the resources to then be able to dismantle systemic oppression externally as well. But the freedom that we can find internally uh, is really priceless and is untouchable. So living in the world as a person of color and for me as a queer woman of color, uh, means you know, dealing with a lot of um, harmful projections that people have and being put into uh, different boxes from people's ideas. And I've seen as uh, I've gone along in my life um, different ways in which I've dealt with this um, and some increased ability to deal with this. And I think when I was much younger, uh, I would just feel very, very impacted and harmed um, by people's projections or the way they spoke to me or things that were done to me. Um, then came a time when I became like enraged by it, you know, the next stage of uh, recognition of racial injustice. And uh, then I remember a certain point at which, um, I remember when, going to a conference once, um, and I was dressed in a, just like all the other conference scores in a suit and everything. And, um, it, but I was the only woman of color there, I think, in the conference, or very few, mostly it was um, white males actually. Uh, and several times people would sort of absentmindedly try and hand me their dishes, you know. I was just assuming that, like, I was there to serve them, right? And, I mean, I had a little badge, I had a folder, you know. It's like, all the markers are there except for this, right? Uh, so then people would ask me, like, where's the coffee? And I would be like, oh, 28th floor. Like, I'd make things up. <laughs> and send them, like, you know, it's in the basement. It's across the street, you know. So this is not an example of wise speech to like lie <laughs> and make things up, but uh, we're talking about harm reduction. Like it actually, it was better than violence, you know, <laughs> certainly it was better than violence. But then um, I think like more and more uh, I'm able to experience these things as purely projections of the other person's mind, you know, like I don't actually have to internalize that at all. You know, the way that you're treating me, if you're treating me badly, you're putting me into a box, that only speaks about the quality of your own mind. Like, that says nothing about my own dignity or worth or anything, you know. So more recently, I, I was at an event, and I was standing by the drink stand, and there's a bunch of different, you know, bottles and cans and stuff, and there's a lady next to me, a, a white lady, who had knocked a bottle off the shelf, and she very absentmindedly said to me, like, pick that up for me, All right? 
And uh, I kind of just looked at her. I looked at the bottle. I looked back up at her. And I looked back at the drink stand, right? And uh, I didn't actually feel the need to say anything to her at this point. But I also certainly was not going to get sort of caught into her role. It was sort of like, yeah, there's these worlds of projection that we all have. And I have them too. And, you know, I put them out. So this person is putting out this world of projection. It's possible not to have to feel like I have to either kill it or kill her. But it's just like... Like, I don't have to pick it up, you know, I don't have to pick up the bottle and I don't have to pick up the script that she's putting out there, you know. And there's so much freedom from being able to see that and to do that. Uh, it just has nothing to do with me, you know, your ideas about who I am. Like, it really doesn't. It's not personal. And uh, there's a way in which there's a, there's a lot of freedom from that. Uh, and, you know, still I did go and, like, tell people the story of that, but it didn't impact me in the same way, I think, as... Um, there's a more deeply grounded sense of yeah, of well-being and of of knowing who I am in some way, like regardless of whether anyone else does, you know. So that's powerful, and I think the practice supports that, and the practice of integrity supports that a lot. You know, having that sense of groundedness, um, and one of the benefits also of um, being someone who has integrity is that it said um, you give the greatest gift to others of the sense of um, not feeling afraid in their presence. Yeah. Like, people can feel like, oh, you're not going to do stuff to harm me. You're not going to try and take stuff from me. Um, you're not going to uh, be like creepy with me sexually in some way. You're not going to lie to me. You know, if, if you ever meet people like that, it's actually, it's so beautiful. And, um, you know, Bonnie was talking about wise company. I feel like that's one of the benefits uh, for me of teaching and of generally of getting to be around people who have this commitment uh, is that there's a sense of safety and confidence like we can have with such people. And it's really such a great gift. Uh, and it doesn't cost anything. And it's sort of regardless of any other aspects of your life, like, yeah, like how much money you have or what job you have at this time or another or uh, how old you are or anything. You know, that ability to give that gift to ourselves into the world, uh, which is not the same as letting yourself be walked on, you know, at all, right? There's actually a strength and dignity and power in that uh, that is, um, yeah, like unsurpassable. It gives that freedom from oppression. And the way that we can dismantle these systems, you know, including uh, within and without is through the practice and through our commitment to this. So uh, some of you may have heard this speech by um, that, activist and actor Jesse Williams recently were uh, getting his award and uh, one of the favorite lines I have was he was like <laughs> it's like the hereafter is a hustle right <laughs> he said you know if you want freedom freedom is only available now and it actually has a good uh, dharma teaching too right <laughs> you know the idea of the future the idea of like I'll become this and or uh, I'm on some some uh, yeah like it's coming in some future like the future doesn't exist except a thought in the present. So uh, if we want freedom, it's to be found here uh, in the present. Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. So some reflections for you. Thank you. Can I say a couple more? Yeah, go. We're bowing already? No, now we're Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So now it's open. (laughs) No, I just wanted to say about the precepts that, you know, these are very different than like commandments. You know, it's not thou shalt or else 
type of things. These are really for our own hearts and minds and the purification of them. They're not for us to judge others who don't, although we do like to hang out with them. It's, you know, it's, um, but really, and, and for ourselves, the, the deep forgiveness of like, if we mess up, if we do kill that mosquito, you know, um, it's, it's, really, it's really as the mindfulness is, it's a practice. It's a way over and over again to remind ourselves that this liberation is possible in my own heart and mind. So I just want to, you know, I just want to say that, that it's not like, oh, shoot, I, you know, stole a staple from the office or whatever. You know, there's ways that we can spend so much time beating ourselves up. Um, but just letting these work through you. And you have these pieces of paper now that you're welcome to take home. They're freely offered. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, you know, try it. Try it on. So often we're asked when people leave retreat, like, how can I, what can I do? How can I take this practice home? What's the, you know, what's the way? And, and this is a really good way. This is a really good way. One of the things that made me feel the most welcome, because I, I had shopped around in a lot of different traditions, but I remembered reading this, that not by caste, race, or creed, or by birth, is one noble but by heart alone is one a noble being. And that's what we get to do with these ethical practices, is really ennoble our hearts. Now we can bow? (laughs) Anybody? If others want to add something. Oh. Do you want to say anything? Maybe we'll just sit for a little bit then, together.
Thank you for your attention to the Dhamma. So we'll have a period for walking practice, and you can practice walking in this way with this kind of care and love that is what it would take to walk on the earth with dignity and care and give this freedom of oppression both to ourselves and to others. And then we will uh, come back for the final sitting is at 8.20, and that will be uh, largely in silence sitting. Got a lot of words today. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.